Hi everyone, my name is Pete Finn and this is the COVID-19 and Democracy podcast. On the podcast today, um, in a line of topics that we have mined quite a lot recently, we are sticking with discussions of higher education, mainly focused on the UK sector, but um, hopefully the insights and ideas have got um, kind of broader, broader broader providence, broader interest for those beyond the shores of the UK. Um, to discuss that with me today, um, oh, we, oh, pardon me, we are going to be talking about student partnerships and how that has, kind of partnerships in higher education have evolved over the last couple of years during the pandemic, um, with particular reference to the UK. And with, I think, and my guest can correct me if I'm wrong, with particular um, reference in that context um, to perhaps Scotland. And I'm talking to Simon Varel, whose name I'm almost certain I've just butchered, so apologies, Simon, <laughs> who is a senior development consultant. And Simon works at Student Partnerships and Quality for Scotland, which is now it goes by the acronym SPARKS, which is the National Agency for Student Engagement in Scotland. Um, Simon's got a BA from the University of Aberdeen in Politics and International Relations, and it's just about imminently to graduate with an MA in student engagement from the University of Winchester. So Simon, welcome to the podcast. Great to be with you, Pete. Thanks for having me. Oh, you're very welcome indeed. It's absolutely my pleasure. Um, so um, could you just introduce yourself and um, your role within Sparks for our listeners? Sure. Um, I, I have the joy of a really interesting but sometimes hard to explain job. Um, primarily because Sparks is unique in the world. So um, Sparks, as, as the full name suggests, Student Partnerships and Quality Scotland, uh, is an agency that exists to build partnership in, in learning and teaching quality in Scotland's universities and colleges. So we're unusual in one sense in that we're tertiary. Uh, we're also a relatively unusual body nationally, and we, we, we have the privilege of being supported by our sector, funded by our funding council. So we're a sort of official recognised agency that, that helps the sector put partnership at the heart of learning and teaching, which we like to think is one of the distinctive features of the of the Scottish sector. And I've been with Sparks for, I think, 14 years now and have done various roles before that in, 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 the, in the Scottish sector. OK, brilliant. Thanks. And um, what are your kind of general research interests? Um, well, uns unsurprisingly, I'm really interested in the idea of student partnership and student engagement. And um, through our work in Sparks, have, have done a whole lot of uh, very interesting stuff, everything from training staff to, to training students and building um, systems and tools of, of partnership and, and supporting ba supporting basically conversations. So I'm really interested in that idea of, of the conversations that staff and students can have um, on, on what a good learning experience looks like. And those interests have become, I think, a little bit more sharpened and better articulated um, of late through, um, as you mentioned, I, I, I'm just about to graduate from the University of Winchester in their um, Master's in Student Engagement, which is a, a unique course um, basically targeted at those who are doing student engagement roles um, within institutions or, or students' associations. And through that, I guess I've kind of pursued and developed my, my interest in concepts of partnership and how we distinguish partnership from um, other perhaps higher or lower levels of engagement. Um, and, and a lot of that links to different kind of um, sectoral discussions that we've had in, in Scotland about uh, about what partnership means at the time of the of the pandemic. Um, and um, one of my the, the focuses in my 
my master's has been on a, on a, a classic tool um, of stakeholder engagement, Arnstein's ladder of citizen participation, which I can explain more a little bit more later on. And I've you know, compared it to other types of scales of its type. I've looked at how other sectors used it. Um, um, and um, I've, I've produced a pandemic version to help us think through what engagement in a, a time of emergency decision-making looks like. Um, secondly, and kind of allied to that, I've been very interested in the interface of staff development and student engagement. So it's easy to see how you equip students to engage, but actually it's just as important, um, and we see that in our work in Sparks, it's just as important to equip staff to be able to engage students effectively and to create that, that kind of powerful, equitable conversation. Um, and I suppose, thirdly, another interest I have is about the citizenship implications of partnerships. So what can student engagement in further and higher education learn from or share with other forms of stakeholder engagement in a democracy? And, you know, there's, there's interesting parallels there that it, it can be a good skills transfer for, for one's wider civic and indeed workplace engagement. So um, and underpinning all of that, I suppose I've been really interested in how the world has changed in terms of decision making as a result of the pandemic. Um, you know, we, we're making different decisions and often in very different ways. So that's that's just a little bit of a brain dump of what I've been thinking about the last while. Brilliant. OK. And now you say all that, especially the parts about citizenship, that makes much that, that kind of connects the dots on on the research that, that you sent me um and so um with that in mind over the last kind of um couple of years so you, you partly as a result of your your masters and then partly now as a result of kind of um, publishing your work from from that um what have you been researching in particular during the pandemic well, I think it's been really interesting being a student actually during the pandemic. I mean, it, it, it was it was a, there was a lot of online delivery anyway, uh, but it was really interesting kind of getting a, a real life experience of that um, as a student and also being able to research the impact of um, student engagement uh, or I beg your pardon, the impact of the pandemic on student engagement, because just as learning and teaching shifted online and some things happened in different ways and some things had to be dropped, it was really interesting to see how student engagement did that um, as a function and as an ingredient, but also uh, as, as a contributor to, to what the reaction um, and accommodation to the pandemic was. And so I think what, I've, what I found really interesting through, through uh, my coursework and through um, just my, my, my work generally Sparks is understanding the extent to which we have been able to maintain partnership during the pandemic. Uh, you know, one school of thought is, well, we need to make um, decisions really quickly, so we're just going to have to do it because this is, you know, mission critical. And another school of thought is that actually, um, just because you engage students in a decision doesn't mean the decision has to be any kind of slower. Um, it's perfectly possible to engage students at speed, especially when everyone is equipped to do so. And I think some of the strengths that we've seen over the last couple of years in Scotland and the other sectors that we've been engaged in uh, and worked with has been that um, it's perfectly possible to keep that engagement going. Um, so, uh, you know, uh, uh, as long as you've been in the groove of doing it anyway. So um, I've been really interested to see how, how we maintain partnership. And as we emerge from the pandemic, what have we learned? Is partnership a good thing, and how does that fit into wider contexts of, of citizenship? Wow, how fascinating. Um, I think the short answer to is it a good idea is surely yes, but <laughs> we could delve into the I hope <laughs> we could delve into the details of that. Um, so I guess with that in mind, how have students been active 
participants during the pandemic i mean at least initially just based on my own very small experience it was hard like it got easier but it was hard because you there was all this new technology you just had to kind of right okay initially i'm going to turn up and deliver basically what i did would have done face to face online um but how is how is that relationship development developed with relation to um, student participation I mean, I, so, anecdotally, I think there's been huge variation, and actually, some of the it was impressive actually how quickly a lot of pandemic era student engagement literature emerged. There were a lot of really good an, uh, articles and anecdotes and evidence and reports coming out very early, um, and I think they painted a fairly mixed picture. But on the whole, I think we we saw particularly in Scotland, where where my the majority of my experience is. And we saw a lot of really good examples of that partnership continuing. Um, and partly that was it was because it was possible. Um, you know, we can just move things online, which uh, I don't want to sound kind of flippant or dismissive, because that's a massive job to move your teaching online and move your decision making online. But, but broadly speaking, it is possible to move a lot of the, um, the, the work of student rep systems and, and um, you know, uh, online communities, clubs, societies, you know, even campaigning online. But so it was it was possible, but it was also arguably essential because we had to move that engagement online in order to ensure that students were involved in the decisions about learning and teaching. Um, you know, there were a lot of pandemic specific issues that came up and in a sense, only came up or partly or substantially came up because students, students associations, students unions were so good at presenting evidence about it. And I'm thinking about issues about uh, mental health, community building, isolation, um, digital poverty, access to learning spaces, impacts on assessment and and uh, progression through qualifications, that kind of thing. That was really, really valuable. Um, so a lot of the reactive stuff was informed very well by students, but we've also seen some, seen some terrific proactive stuff with really good engagement between staff and students um, shaping the curriculum. Um, and you know, as as you have to adapt your curriculum to online delivery, there's great scope for the student as the kind of the the recipient, the 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 receiver of that learning, and also the expert in what it's like to learn in a certain circumstance to be able to say, well, that look, that looks good, and how can we do it this way, and how can we do it that way? So, um, I mean, it's 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 not been perfect, but I think students and students associations have stepped up to the mark admirably, um, and while it has been a big strain. Uh, and a huge stress, and I don't think anyone would wish the pandemic on our society again, I like to think that there's been an increase in empathy between the staff and students, because, um, you know, where, where staff have been under stress having to move their teaching online, well, there's a similar dynamic for students, and when students are expressing views about how difficult it's been, one of the great things that they can do is empathise with staff who are, who are going through a similar thing. And so when, so I, I arguably staff and students have even more in common now in terms of what they're experiencing and the things they're wrestling with. And that empathy is a perfect basis for a partnership conversation. Um, and so that, that's a kind of a, I suppose, a positive answer. But, you know, it's not been perfect. Um, uh, we've seen engagement way below what it sh should be in terms of partnership. And um, one of the things that I, I, I noticed of, of interest was it was actually how some of the student engagement and student activism went beyond partnership into spaces where actually the students were taking control so we saw things like you know the campus riots during lockdown that kind of thing which is an example of students taking more than a partnership role in decision making and you know that that 
presented threats to institutions in terms of credibility. It uh, perhaps undermined the often quiet behind-the-scenes role that students' unions were doing. Um, and, um, you know, but, but then to give them credit, quite a lot of these, you know, rioters and demonstrators led to manifestly clear impacts, for example, in rent rebates. So there's a really interesting debate, I think, there about the different types of of participation and the different types of engagement that students had, both kind of in the tent and outside the tent. Um, and it's helped me to think an awful lot about what that meant for um, models of partnership and how you can capture that at, at, at such an uncertain time. Okay, well, that um, is both fascinating, but also leads me very well on to my next question, <laughs> um, which is, can we draw parallels between kind of student participation or kind of partnerships in education and then citizenship more broadly? Mm -hmm. I would say so, yes, yes, absolutely. And um, I think how, how you engage in your studies and how the authority, the, the, the institution engages you um, probably owes at least something to the wider democratic concept, context that it's in. Um, so, you know, on a very basic level, there, there may be kind of, you know, uh, government drives to include, include citizens in, in, in shaping all aspects of their lives, be it, you know, kind of uh, bin collection through to kind of environmental issues, through to education, health and, and, and so on. So uh, there is an undercurrent, I think, in most democracies and certainly in Scotland of the service user and the stakeholder being a really important part of the decision making process. Um, and so I think a lot of the models that are used to measure student engagement and wider citizen engagement are, are um, very transferable. So as, as I mentioned earlier, Einstein's ladder of citizen participation was my kind of um, one of the main focuses of my of my research and thinking in my masters. And that had its origins in the 1960s in um, urban planning in the USA. And Sherry Arnstein, um, she was a she was a civil servant who had a really interesting career starting out in um, uh, advocacy for juveniles going through the court system. Um, and then um, she was in a, a fascinating uh, project relating to desegregation of hospitals and what that meant for kind of, uh, you know, patient involvement and things like that and how citizens could shape that. So, and as you can, you know, uh, imagine 1960s USA was a time of fraught uh, tensions, but also some progress and advancement on, on things like race relations. And she developed from her experiences of all of that and, and, and in the urban design realm, and developed this ladder and it's basically this eight point um uh, progression between basically no engagement whatsoever and the citizen being um engaged um pretty much in a controlling position and a lot of people have adapted that to different sectors including education there are a lot of people saying well what does Einstein tell us for how we design the curriculum what does it tell us for about how we design campuses what does it tell us about what a quality system should look like um, and so if we so so I suppose to answer your question yes there is a parallel because we're able to import tools like Einstein um, but also I think um, the pandemic has hit us all together. Yes, it's certainly hit education, but that's had wider impact on other communities in terms of, for example, residences and, and communities um, and, you know, city centres being hollowed out of their student populations because they've all gone back home and that kind of thing. 
Um, and also, I think it's just uh, the pandemic has probably uncovered lots of questions about um, participation and engagement across multiple sectors. So I wouldn't say education and, and other sectors are all identical, but there are, to some extent, the pandemic has revealed some similar dynamics, I think, which, which helped help, help us contextualise education, but also enable learning and sharing between different sectors who engage their citizens. Okay. Um, and so turning, I guess, specifically to Einstein's work in more detail, when I was when I was reading your your article, and so for listeners, Simon's article that much of this is discussion is based on is not out, but it should be coming out relatively soon. So once it's out, um, we'll pop the link into the show notes. So anyone listening kind of from later on in summer 2020, hopefully we'll be able to get um, that link. Um, so how one of the things that was interesting was the kind of the concepts within um, Einstein's work. Um, and so how how can concepts from that, such as non-participation, tokenism and citizen, citizen power, how can they be of use to us here? Are they useful most, obviously, in like to kind of gradiate levels of engagement or is there kind of different levels to that? Yeah, I think what's powerful about the ladder is that the tool, the, the, the terms Einstein uses to name the, the, the levels are quite relatable and on one level, I think, quite self-explanatory. And I think looking at the ladder helps us as individuals and as citizens to be aware of how we're treated as a citizen. Um, and, and, you know, I would com commend your listeners to read Arnstein's original um, article. If you just Google Arnstein's Ladder of Citizen Participation, uh, you'll find the 1969 article. Um, and one thing I like about it, it it's quite an, an easy read, and she, packs, she, she unpacks each of the eight levels with lots of anecdotes and examples from her work in urban design. And, you know, they're all relatable and familiar um, in terms of people, you know, going along to a meeting but not feeling it's very effective, and you know, there's a very powerful anecdote about a woman complaining that a workshop she was strongly encouraged to go to um, served absolutely no purpose. She got nothing out of it, and she gave up her morning of doing laundry to go there. Uh, and if you are talking about um, disempowered individuals, often in financially very disadvantaged situations, to take them away from their domestic duties for half a day, I mean, that, that is an enormous sacrifice to, to busy, stressed people. So I think we can all relate to systems that may or may not be engaging us well. And I think, secondly, one of the really powerful things that I took from the article was that she, she was quite prophetic at one point when she talks about kind of um, race and, and housing, which is her primary focus, because obviously, that, that <laughs> unsurprisingly, the higher and lower levels of engagement on the ladder have a very strong racial profile to them. Um, it's the disadvantaged African-American populations that find themselves at the lowest end of the ladder um, being disengaged by predominantly white middle-class uh, council administrators. Um, that's probably not a surprise, and you know, I don't know if that's still the same in the USA. Um, but yeah, I think it was relatable because she talks about her model kind of um, working elsewhere. And if I may, I just want to read a really powerful um, paragraph from her article where she says that her ladder um, could just as easily be illustrated in the church, currently facing demands for power from priests and laymen who seek to change its mission, colleges and universities, which in some cases have become literal back battlegrounds over the issue of student power, or public schools, city halls, and police departments, or big business, which is likely to be next on the expanding lists of targets. Now, remember, that's 1969, but she is effectively there um, uh, 
prophesying things like you know the Black Lives Movement, uh, Black Black Lives Matter movement, and the defunding of the police. I think there's echoes in there about you know the the various riots, student riots we've seen over the years. Um, there's echoes. She mentions um, the churches, and you know there's been lots of headlines lately about you know. Uh, abuse scandals within religious and church-led institutions and there's echoes I think of everything from kind of you know um, it makes me think of the likes of Me Too and the the, the Safer Streets um, uh, for Women idea and you know everything from LGBT rights to climate action because all of these are movements which while they all have very unique powerful roots that must never be forgotten in terms of the individual stories and experiences that people have, they all share to some extent um, a critique of how decisions are made and whether and how individual voices can be heard and why they're not heard. So I, I think um, the, the, the universality, the, the wide adaptability of that ladder is really interesting because it helps us develop, I think, a kind of an intersectional view of of power and access to decision making, um, and um, I think it's really interesting because you know when, when you get people talking about Arnstein's ladder in education, it's very easy to say, and you know how does that make you feel as a citizen of your local council? How does that make you feel about you know government decisions during the pandemic or you know the community organisation you're a part of or life on your street? So I think it's very easy to to get people thinking about how they're engaged in in, in their lives. So. So I, th I, th I think that's I think the terms are quite kind of um, applicable in many ways. And you know, as I say, I would I would again urge people to read the article. It's not long, and the bite-sized chunks that unpack each of the eight, eight levels are are very relatable. Brilliant, thanks. I was also thinking. Um, I mean, you, you probably thought about this yourself. It probably work or might work with Occupy, right? The, but you mm. know, talking about kind of the corporate power the the 99 percent that there's something probably <laughs> you could do something interesting with that um, if yeah. that probably someone may well have done already <laughs> very, very much so and with all of these cases i mean w one or two of these things are kind of you know um not necessarily um uh, matters of political con consensus but in the sense it doesn't matter whether you agree with people protesting on one issue or the other what matters is that they are they are manifestly demonstrating that they haven't really found another way of expressing themselves and and actually that's why you will you know that's why you saw for you know kind of students rioting during the pandemic and you know arnstein herself refers to um people who might take to direct action because that's all they feel they can do um and so whether or not one agrees with the protesters um uh, views it is clear that they sincerely feel that's what they now need to do um, and it does at least offer a a scope for exploring, if not actually deconstructing, who it is that's making the decisions. Sure, absolutely. Um, and so, just before we wrap up, does your work, do you think, and I mean, some of this might be speculative at this point, or, or perhaps not, but does your work suggest that your kind of, your construct, building on the work of Einstein, um, uh, offers some kind of conceptual model that might be of use in in future emergency situations <laughs> well uh, as someone who as you say is about to have published um an, an adaptation of arnstein 
precisely for emergencies, I'd love to say yes, and you know, there's my answer, and that's all you need. <laughs> we'll leave it um, there. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Send it off to the Scottish government and Westminster, and you're done. Yeah. Absolutely, and I can put my feet up. But um, there's obviously a risk of over theorising and over modelling things. Um, and you know, I, I have no idea what our next emergency is going to be. Is it going to be a political one? Is it going to be a war? Is it going to be another pandemic? Is it going to be further economic problems? Whatever it is, there may at some point, you know, next five, ten, or fifty years, be something that has the same impact on our society uh, uh, or our education system as COVID. And I wouldn't suggest that at that point, decision makers sit down with their citizens and you know have a nice cup of tea and look at a model like Einstein and chat about how they might just begin to start disrupting their power dynamics and better engaging citizens when just outside the office there's a massive bin fire going on. Um, but but you know and, and while I'm you know a huge fan of Einstein's ladder and all these other comparable models out there, what I found most rewarding in my research was on was digging into the criticisms of them, which I wasn't necessarily originally aware of. And you know um, some people um, uh, so some of the criticisms I agreed with, some of them I didn't. Um, some people who um, try you know some people would say that doesn't quite work in this context or this sector so let's adapt it slightly and that when that was exciting and that you know that's what I've done myself some people criticized it as too simplistic you can't fit everything into those eight rungs but then when they tried to come up with something better and more complicated they tied themselves in knots and they lost any hope of coherence um, so for me the real strength of things like Einstein isn't that it, you know it, it's perfect in detail or you know um, uh, multi-directionally adaptable, but it's a good starting point for a conversation. You can put nearly every every type of decision maker and citizen into a room, give them Einstein's ladder, leave, come back two hours later, and they'll have some good scribbles for you. It's a great place to start. So, so I mean, I, I think for me, what best prepares us for emergency era stakeholder engagement is is embedding things like a good sense of partnership in our non-emergency times. I mean, I get the impression over the last couple of years that the authorities generally and decision makers in education specifically um, did well during the pandemic at, the, at their engagement because they were good at it anyway. They were they, they built it in to their DNA. They built it into our thinking and they were robust and resilient enough to be able to carry on with that engagement during the pandemic. So for me, what I think is the most exciting thing going on in our, our sector in Scotland at the moment is doing things like embedding concepts of partnership, not just any old engagement, but partnership, um, inspired partly by things like Arnstein and similar ladders, uh, into our quality arrangements and into educational development activities and so forth. So if, if we build up that instinct among people to empower others as part of their work, then actually once it gets woven into our DNA and obviously through education's impact on wider society, it will become part of our instinct at any um, stage of, of, of crisis and it will be part of uh, um, a, an improvement of our wider sense of democratic citizenship. So, um, yeah, so, you know, to, 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 to summarise that, yeah, I, I, I think the lad thing, these things can be useful at a time of emergency, but I think only if we've got it into our heads at peace times. Yeah, sure. Otherwise, it, it there's like a it could be all surface, no feeling, right? Absolutely, yeah. And one of the ways I like to sum up student engagement is that it's a mixture of culture and structure. And in one sense, the structure is the easy bit. Anyone can create a committee and put students on it. Anyone can, you know, develop a a good rep system or um, um, open the door and hold a focus group. And anyone can write a good survey. Um, but actually. 
where is the instinct to kind of engage people proactively to do something with the outcomes to truly shift that power dynamic? And you know, I think one of the headlines of my research was that um, people move into the partnership space um, only when the real power holders uh, relinquish that power even slightly, uh, whether proactively or under duress from protests. So it really does require the leadership to, to think, okay, we're going to do that differently. And that's where the culture comes from. Um, the culture, yes, can come from the roots, but you know, it's often the, the decision makers that create that culture. Um, so that's that's where it begins to take root, um, and so um, and that's why it's so important in you know the things like the staff development spaces and, and and the policy arena, so that you can get those who hold hold the power, if you like, to really really think critically themselves about what power they have and how they can share that. Okay, all right. So to surmise, if you're a budget holder in the UK higher education sector, open your wallet <laughs> and yes. resource this stuff. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, uh, although reassuring, I, reassuringly, I don't think partnership is a particularly um, expensive way of doing things. Yeah, that is true. Because, it's... I mean, you already have students' unions. You already have students out there who are informed and equipped. It's a case of bringing in that expertise into the room. Um, and neither does it necessarily involve more money being spent as a result of the decision. It's, you know, it's not a yeah, fear. Sometimes tweaks can make big differences, right? Yes, absolutely. And the more you engage students in the big pictures of, you know, let's take budgeting and financial decisions, the more people understand the constraints, the more realistic they will be with their um, with their views, the more contextualised they'll be. And also, this isn't about, you know, partnership is not about doing everything that the citizen says. You know, spend a million quid on this, do that. Uh, it's not about that. What it is about is, is drawing people into a an equitable conversation. So partnership is a much, much better, safer space for everybody than, a, than an ultra-consumerist environment where you're giving the students everything you think they want out of some sort of fear of their power as a consumer, whether or not sure. you think it's a good idea. Sure, yeah. Okay, all right. Simon, that was all so interesting. Um, and, uh, well, let's hope that the next emergency is far down the pipeline. But you are right, it, you know, we don't know what it will be and it if, if uh, recent history or history in general right, is anything, any kind of guide, it's bound, you know, if, if we get by, get through a decade without one, we'll be lucky. Um, so um, maybe we can listen back to this discussion and try to <laughs> draw some insights from it uh, whenever it comes. So thank you very much for coming on. It's been great to be with you, Pete. Thanks so much. Cheers.